Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his finished work. Thank you that we gather here to live in it, rejoice in it, proclaim it, and remind ourselves from your word about our task in this world that we can only accomplish by your grace, which is the point of our text this morning. So walk us through 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17 this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone read the text. Matt? Ben? Ben read our text. So let me share with you our ninth vow. Ninth vow reads... We will seek to advance the proclamation of the gospel through those relationships God affords us in our families, workplaces, and communities. We will support through prayer and giving those whom the church sends to proclaim the gospel beyond our locale. To summarize this vow, this vow is about what we call evangelism and missions. To assign one label over it, it's about the Great Commission. To summarize the Great Commission, it is about making disciples. Jesus said, Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is an incredibly challenging vow because it's the first push outward. It's a reminder that we've been called, that we have been called on the one hand to persevere to the end. We talk a lot about that here. But it is a reminder, on the other hand, that the call to persevere to the end is in no way a call to fearfully close our eyes and just hang on. It is a call to embrace by faith the mission of Christ formed in each other and Christ proclaimed to the ends of the earth so that he might be formed in his people from every nation and tongue and tribe and people. And the call to persevere in this mission is a warning that it will not be easy. And you will be tempted to walk away. And while that text, Matthew 28, seemed like the most obvious place to go this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17 seems so fitting, not only for how it captures our mission over how it surrounds it with implications and promises and warnings and charges, all the while holding out before us the goal. So I'm summarizing our text by five sentences that I think capture Peter's charge to his readers, specifically regarding the dual call to persevere and press on, which I'm actually saying are one and the same. 
persevere by pressing on. I want to provide some context, but I don't want to belabor unnecessarily the context of the letter. It is important to try to place our text this morning because we're jumping three chapters into a letter that we um, not work through as a church. Um, From the beginning, it's clear that Peter is not only writing to Christians who had suffered and had been displaced because of their persecution, but who were continuing to suffer in their ongoing exile. In other words, there was not a happy ending to their sufferings as of yet. Which is precisely why Peter is writing to them here to hold out hope to them for an eternally happy ending in Jesus. And to charge them in light of it not to persevere by holding on. But to persevere by pressing on. All the way until the happy end that's promised to all of us in scripture is a reality. When the chief shepherd shall appear. And according to the end of this letter, himself, he will appear and he will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish every one of his own. But know this, Peter warns them before he says that, he warns them this will happen, brothers and sisters, after you have suffered a while. Anytime I get an opportunity to quote Andrew Peterson, I do. And the words to his song are absolutely timeless. Give us faith to be strong. Give us strength to be faithful. This life is not long. But it's hard. And it is by God's design so that we recognize our need for grace and strength that's found in the redemption of Christ alone. These words in Peter's letter could legitimately be copied and pasted back into any one of the other 65 books of the Bible and be totally fitting. So Peter here is not being gloomy at all. His letter is set in the context of exile and suffering for God's people because that is the reality in which we live in every generation but the purpose of the letter isn't to fill them or fill us with sadness but rather with hope and with assurance this letter is filled it's filled with hope-filled promises and full of assurances to his readers of their standing in Christ They're standing as elect and raised with him. With promises of an imperishable inheritance that is undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for every one of us who know Jesus. To catch up with Peter's own words, he says, us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter holds out this hope to his readers to fill them with joy in their sufferings and to assure them that the suffering that accompanies this life is within God's sovereign purposes and actually it's more than that. It's actually ordered by his sovereign hand for our good. Why? 
as he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the very salvation of your souls. So Peter's writing to suffering believers. And he's giving them the assurance of their standing before the father in the son. And he's calling them to persevere But he's surrounding the call to persevere with calls to action. The fulfilling of which I'm arguing this morning is the evidence that you are actually persevering. It's the connection that James makes between faith and works. Works being the fruit of true, spirit-born, blood-bought faith. So in your life of unavoidable suffering, Be assured, brothers and sisters, that you are God's chosen ones. You've been raised with Jesus in his resurrection. You've been born again by his spirit. And you will be preserved by God's power to receive the full inheritance that has been won for you and is being kept for you in heaven. And you and I must believe that what is happening to you now, us now is being ordered by the good and sovereign hand of the same God who pledged his love toward you in eternity past and demonstrated it most definitively and irreversibly at the cross and in the resurrection. But as important as the setting of our faith in these realities is the faith-filled, humble, yet confident, joyful obediences to these charges that Peter lays out. So what I'm doing now is I'm setting us up for our text by showing that Peter describes this life along with Jesus and Paul and James and others He describes this life as a life of suffering. And the call every one of them make is to persevere. But perseverance isn't sit and wait or close your eyes and hold on, but press on and fight. So listen to just some of these as we inch our way to chapter 3. Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy. For I am holy. Or? Chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for this pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Chapter 2 and verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Very closely related to that very outward Missional command is our text. So we, we skipped some in between chapter 2 and verse 11 and chapter 3 and verse 13 that obviously would do well to read and to process, not just as commands, but as further evidences of your perseverance. But on the other side of chapter 2 and verse 11's honorable conduct among those who speak evil of you, leading to their seeing your good deeds and glorifying your God on the day of visitation is 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. In addition to honorable conduct as a faith-filled, persevering response to evil directed at you is Verbal defense and proclamation of the gospel. And we absolutely want both sides of that coin. We want perseverance in suffering that expresses itself in honorable, faith-filled conduct and verbal defense and proclamation of the gospel. To have one without the other on either side is to distort, and ultimately miss the gospel. So having walked up to our text, Peter says more than five things in our text. But among other things that he says, I'm summarizing our text with five sentences that I think will encourage us toward the Renewal and fulfilling of our ninth vow. Number one, the expectation in our text is we will suffer. We will suffer. It's not only the tone of the whole letter, but it is particularly implied here. And it's really significant that it comes on the heels of the prohibition of God's suffering people from repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, he says, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. We're granted the assurance in verse 12, which Peter quotes from Psalm 34, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In the next verse, which is verse 13, Peter presents you and me as ultimately untouchable. 
indestructible in Christ. And I've realized that there is an arrogant and a reckless, irresponsible way to talk like that. But there is also a very biblical, humbly confident, promise-grounded way to talk like that that will manifest itself in what Peter says it will manifest itself in, which is honorable conduct. Humble boldness with the gospel, non-vindictive, non-retaliatory blessing instead of cursing. And Peter says, if you hold on to this reality, you will not repay evil for evil, but you will remain zealous for good even while you suffer. So the implication here, which, which is only an implication because we just jumped into this book, otherwise it's a major obvious theme in 1 Peter, The implication, as we're stating it, is for we are going to suffer. And he says particularly we're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. Which means to live life attempting to avoid suffering brothers and sisters, is not commended as a mark of exceptionally wise Christian living. From Christians who've found a way to coexist and just blend in to the end. It's actually condemned as an evidence that your faith is not real. So if that's your strategy for what you think persevering is, I fear you are not really persevering, which means I fear that you are in grave danger of being found to be an enemy of the gospel in the end. Because the implication or the expectation is we will suffer for this. Paul says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. What is encouraging about our text, however, is even though suffering is the implication or the expectation, it's offset. And it's actually not only offset as an equal, it's overcome by the promise, you will be blessed. Peter says, you will be blessed, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And he's not making this up or just blurting empty promises to keep his readers clinging to a hope that they're just going to have to take his word on. This is Jesus' own words here, lifted out of the Sermon on the Mount, being invoked for his readers. Assurance here in their suffering. So let's recall Jesus' words. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. 
And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And, and don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying you earn the kingdom or earn your inheritance by being persecuted. So don't go around with a martyr's complex. He's simply saying, remaining zealous for righteousness and filled with faith in the work of Christ and hopeful joy in God's promises is what perseverance is. And those who persevere are those who are sustained by God's preservation. And these are those for whom the kingdom and a glorious inheritance is laid up and being kept. So the promise is God will preserve you. The charge in light of that promise is, therefore, by faith, persevere, and you will inherit all that is yours in Christ, the kingdom and the inheritance. They are yours. They've been won for you. They're being kept for you. So, The expectation is we will suffer. The offsetting, overcoming promise is, but we will be blessed. The warning in this text is you you will fear. Which is why at the end of verse 14, we find a prohibition. Peter's invoking the authority of God's word to overcome a natural expected fear that we will either cave to or overcome by the spirit as he sanctifies us through the word. So Peter here is quoting Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 15. He says, for the Lord spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. He goes on to say, Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a house of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and they shall be broken. They shall be snared and taken. You can see what Peter is saying here. They as in those who plot and cause your suffering, do so hoping to instill fear in you with the ultimate goal to silence you. It's no different from Satan himself as he tempted our Lord in the desert. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And it's the same thing Peter is saying here. They persecute you because they wish to silence you. But remember, Jesus told you you would suffer. But he also promised the blessing of the kingdom and the inheritance if you will endure. Fearing them is the opposite of persevering. 
But verse 15, honoring Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts is what persevering looks like in the face of the temptation to fear man and keep silent. So silence and fear of man do not, cannot coexist with confidence in what is written, which Peter invokes for our perseverance here as Isaiah chapter 8. It is written, honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. The promise attached to that is, and he will become a sanctuary for you and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling for them. So the expectation is, you and I will suffer for this. The promise is, but you and I will be blessed for this if we endure. The warning is, you will be tempted with fear, which is their goal. The charge here is stake your confidence in what is written. Honor Christ the Lord as holy, and he will be a sanctuary for you. On the other side of that charge, so there's two points to this fourth sentence. On the other side of that charge is the text that specifically lets us know what he's talking about here. And why he's calling for this here. So they persecute because they want to imprison us with fear in order to keep us silent regarding the gospel. But Peter says here, but be ready. Because in God's incredible design, your perseverance, in other words, your enduring of suffering, your confidence in God's promises, your refusal to cave in to their fear, and your fear of God in its place will provide you the venue to do the very thing they were hoping to prevent you from doing, which is advance the gospel. Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. He's saying, perseverance in suffering doesn't just look like silent holding on. It looks like hope on display. And Peter's charging his readers not just hold on. But he's saying rather be ready to make a gentle and respectful defense of the gospel because God may very well be pleased and he has often been pleased to open blind eyes to persevering hope on display in the lives of his suffering people. He says, be prepared to make a defense of your hope, which is on display in your perseverance. So they aren't just asking, why don't you break? Or what is it about you? Perseverance here provokes something more specific that's not centered on you or me. Perseverance provokes the question about your hope. Why are you so hopeful? What is it about your hope? Tell me about the hope that is in you. I find it so interesting that so many texts 
in Scripture commission us to go to them. But this one says, in the context of suffering, we still heed the call to go to them, knowing they will inflict suffering and hope to silence us. But if we persevere, which looks like Christ honored in our hearts is holy, us fearing him rather than them, which looks like us clinging to the promise that he will be a sanctuary for us. Peter says they will see it and they will ask. It's probably important for us to not misunderstand what he's saying. Because this is maybe somewhat of a hard pill to swallow. He's not holding out any promise that our perseverance in suffering, which again, Christ honored in our hearts, our hope in his accomplishments and his word on display, leading to their asking a reason for our hope. Peter doesn't promise here that that is going to result in conversion. And not just conversion, he doesn't promise us here that that kind of perseverance is going to put an end to our sufferings in this life. It's the very reason why this letter had to be written. Peter is writing to people who fled their homes because of suffering and whose suffering was ongoing for the gospel. But but I do think this helps filter our motives. We don't endure suffering or honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts or cling to his promises primarily so that our suffering ends in this life. It's the, it's the massive misunderstanding. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. Why hasn't God lifted this yet? I'm trying my best. Why am I still suffering? He's, he's correcting that misunderstanding here. We don't endure or honor or cling or bless or proclaim primarily for what we hope to get out of it. Remember, suffering in this life is the expectation. And it's not promised to be lifted until the end when Jesus returns and everything is made eternally new. Until then, we persevere and we fear God and we honor Christ as holy and we hold out hope in God's promises with the motive, not that we get lifted suffering, but that in life or in death, Christ might be honored. That's the goal. Because... To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now let's be clear. We do hold out hope based upon our text. That the result of our hope in Christ on display in our perseverance and sufferings will lead to our verbal defense and proclamation of the gospel and result in the conversion of many. That's what we want. And we do so based on chapter 2 and verse 11. That many who spoke against you and your God might see your good deeds and hear your defense and glorify God on the day of visitation. So on the one hand, when Peter states the goal of all this, it is no doubt the salvation of many. But in our text, specifically, Peter also says, 
having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So, the expectation is, we will suffer for this. The offsetting, overcoming promises, but we will be blessed. The warning is, we will be tempted to be fearful and silent. But the dual charge is, honor Christ and be ready. Honor Christ and be ready to make a defense of your honor of him as your hope in him is on display. The ultimate goal is the honor of Christ in the salvation of some and the eternal shame of others. The goal of all of this is God glorified by the exaltation of his son. Our hope is for many. For many. That means they too will glorify God on the day of visitation. That is our hope. But because our greater goal and motive is the glory of Christ on display and declared, we embrace with a temporary sorrow that is overcome by an eternal joy that those who refuse to honor Christ the Lord in their hearts will be put to shame. In this life, we grieve over that and we continue to endure suffering for the gospel in hope that their reviling will turn by God's grace to glorifying. But brothers and sisters, in eternity... When all is made right again, you and I will rejoice that the finished work of Christ will, in fact, be on display as finished. Where? Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by gates and where outside those gates are the dogs and sorcerers and the immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. But what I'm saying is that time is not yet. And we have been commissioned, and we have pledged. And our pledge is to give of our time, energy, and money, and also of ourselves, expecting suffering, but clinging to promises. Knowing we will be tempted to fear, but trusting in what has been written, which is honor Christ the Lord as holy, and he will be a sanctuary for you. And be ready to defend your hope. Proclaim it. Because hope on display leads to opportunity. The goal is always God glorified in the exaltation of his son for the eternal salvation of some, and for the eternal shame of others. We hope it is the former in this life, because Christ is worthy of praise from everyone, everywhere, and we wish for his glory in that way. But when all is said and done and made right, we will rejoice, brothers and sisters, that sin is banished. And that those who refuse his honor will be eternally shamed. 
And what the church is called to be now, which is a united body of joy-filled, blood-bought, spirit-indwelt worshipers and witnesses, will be a reality then. But in the now, Christ Fellowship, in the now, this is what you signed up for. You signed up for this in reference to your support of our corporate efforts to the ends of the earth. You signed up for this in reference to your personal efforts with your acquaintances. And you signed up for this in reference to your openness, yourself, to go from here to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Regardless of the cost, anticipating suffering, but clinging to the promises that overcome the fear of man. Filling you by the Spirit with the honor of Christ in your hearts and a readiness to proclaim and defend. Motivated by the exaltation of Christ to the ends of the earth. In the salvation of those who believe and the eternal shame of those who remain in unbelief. This particular vow is a vow that I pray God will grow us, stretch us, test us, and use us. Because Christ Fellowship, it is our mission. Because it's our mission, and because Scripture assigns this weight to it, may God give us faith to be strong, And give us strength to be faithful. This life is not long, but it is hard. Therefore, give us grace to go on. Make us willing and able, Lord. Give us faith to be strong. Why don't I pray to that end, and why don't you join me? Father, thank you for the privilege it is to address you. To address you knowing what you've said. To be reminded of the incredible weight that comes along with the task. And yet, Lord, to embrace it, to press on towards it because of the promises that you've given not only to be with us, but to be a sanctuary to us. To hold out before us the hope of a kingdom and an an inheritance that has been won for us in the accomplishments of your Son, Lord, we embrace this task with its weight despite its warnings based on your promises, motivated by the glory of Christ because knowing him, we fully embrace the reality that his glory is worth proclaiming to the ends of the earth and not just proclaiming, but in hope that people from all tribes and tongues and nations on earth 
might hear it, have their eyes open to see it, and have their hearts open to embrace it. Lord, use us to that end. Perhaps even use us this week in our locale. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.